Ladies and gentlemen, the following segment of the podcast is presented exclusively by my favorite college in America, Hillsdale College, which proudly refuses every penny of government funding to remain independent. Thank you for listening and my sincere appreciation to Hillsdale for their sponsorship. It's all quiet in the underground bunker. Doors closed, locks bolted. But the great one isn't just resting on his laurels. He's making sure your weekend is even better by giving you his best. This is the best of Mark Levin. I spent a lot of time reading two books. The first one is The Third Reich in the Ivory Tower, Complicity and Conflict on American Campuses. See, this is the first time. And the second book is Hitler's American Friends, the Third Reich Supporters in the United States. And when you look at, I can't read all these books on the air, obviously, but when you look at the table of contents, the Third Reich in the Ivory Tower, this is a fantastically important book. You can see that it's the same universities and colleges doing the same thing all over again. For instance... Chapter 2, Legitimizing Nazism, Harvard University, and the Hitler Regime, 1933-37. to 37. Chapter 3, Complicity and Conflict, Columbia University's Response to Fascism, 1933-37. through 37. It's very sympathetic to it. Chapter 4, The Seven Sisters Colleges and the Third Reich, Promoting Fellowship Through Student Exchange. Chapter 5, A Respectful Hearing for Nazi Germany's Apologists, the University of Virginia Institute of Public Affairs Roundtables from 1933 to 1941. Chapter 6, Nazi Nests, German Departments and American Universities, 1933 to 1941, just as we have Islamo-Nazi, Hamas, and other rat's nests throughout our university and college system. And in this book, Hitler's American Friends, American universities did little to curtail the influence of pro-German speakers on campus during the, obviously, Third Reich. Throughout the decade, German exchange students, some of whom were Nazi Party members and were likely operating as propaganda agents, and other speakers were given mostly unchallenged platforms on university campuses you see that now with the Hamas network and the Islamo-Nazis. American universities, therefore, offered the German government a remarkable level of establishment legitimacy in the United States. Even after the violently anti-Semitic nature of the regime had become clear. Just as Hitler's corporate friends had showed little reluctance doing business with the Third Reich, his friends in academia maintained their own relationship with Hitler's regime. Both the Nazis and the U.S. government were aware of the propaganda potential provided by American universities. Testifying before the DICE committee, John C. Metcalf argued that the German government had a particular interest in American students. He said the purpose of the exchange students on universities has long been to foster goodwill and peace among the nations result in greater understanding. But this worthwhile aim has been neglected in the exchange of German students for American. Now, America students are being indoctrinated 
with the aims of fascism in Germany, both abroad and at home, to the detriment of democratic institutions in America. Some of this rhetoric served as the intellectual precursor to the 1950s, they write, with Joe McCarthy, but they also say some of it, that is McCarthyism, was legitimate. The Nazis did indeed benefit from a dedicated propaganda network within the American academic establishment. Around the country, students and faculty alike increasingly became embroiled in unfolding international tensions as the 1930s progressed. Most often, it was the vocally anti-Nazi professors, some of whom were themselves Jewish refugees from Nazi oppression, who faced the brunt of administrative repression, just as Jewish professors and Gentile professors who speak out now are silenced or threatened and in fear of their own careers and worse. At one point, it was even rumored that the German Council General in New Orleans was offering cash to universities that dismissed anti-Nazi professors. The same was much less often the case for openly pro-Nazi professors unless student or public pressure demanded action. This is important, don't you think? You're learning more here than you're going to learn anywhere else. Trust me. I put in the time. I put in the work. Not because I want to pat on the back, because I am endlessly trying to pursue the truth and information and pass it along to you. These campus conflicts were directly fed by the surprising degree to which American universities and faculty members remain willing to send their students to study in the Third Reich even after the anti-Semitic and violent nature of Nazism were clear. There were, of course, still some legitimate reasons to sponsor a study in German institutions. Before 1933, German universities, uh, let's see here, one second, were among the best in the world and boasted an impressive number of Nobel Prize winners. But not after 1933, the purpose became more than obvious. A little bit more, if you will, as we delve into this. Normalizing Nazism in the American popular imagination and academic circles was the goal. The claim that Nazism might contain some anti-Semitic elements, but was also open to intellectual critique was at best naive. The suggestion that Nazi students were so eager to defend their new uh, government, in part because of the withering criticisms of foreigners, gave their arguments an unwarranted intellectual legitimacy at the same time their government was expelling Jewish academics. By the way, were all the Jews in, uh, in Iran... Not many left. How about Iraq? None left. Where are the Jews in Jordan? None left. How about Syria? Gone. Lebanon? Almost all gone. Isn't it amazing? The, the level of stupidity or intentional diversion by the Biden administration and others of the media and Democrats the Jews, and I might add the Christians, were all pushed out of this area of the world. 
In the earliest days of Judaism, there was no Islam. In fact, there was no Christianity. And now the Jews, you see, are occupiers. The insanity of this. And for the West to entertain this, for the Democrat Party to advance this, for Joe Biden to promote this, for Obama to promote it, is sickening. In 1934, left-wing muckraker John L. Spivak published a salacious expose entitled Plotting America's Pogroms that purported to expose Nazi plots in the United States. Based on a series of articles originally published in the radical newspaper New Masses, its seventh chapter was dedicated to exposing the, quote, hate the Jew campaign in the colleges, unquote. The allegations contained in it were explosive. After Hitler's rise to power, Spivak claimed, the German government set in motion a plan to spread Nazism and anti-Semitism in American universities. German exchange students would play one role in the plot, but the real threat lay in the use of domestic fifth columnists. I've been saying this over and over again. Our immigration system has imported Islamists, a lot of other people too, but Islamists for sure. Our immigration system has imported anti-Semites. Our immigration system has imported people who support the destruction of the United States of America. So what did this gentleman write? He said, What the vast majority of students and professors do not know is that in our universities and colleges, there is a secret anti-Semitic organization directed by German exchange students to carry on pro-Hitler propaganda and develop the hate the Jews creed for the sake of pure Aryan culture. Working with these secret organizations are Nazi agents who come here ostensibly to study, meaning these, these so-called students. And 100% Americans in these so-called patriotic organizations, which are distributing anti-Semitic propaganda in cooperation with secret Hitler agents in the United States. We know all about the Hamas network, I told you. It's not a conspiracy. They were wiretapped by the FBI. This, look, here's the deal. The Palestinian Nazis who worked with Adolf Hitler... And the so-called Grand Mufti, who was a Palestinian. They read Mein Kampf. They read it today. They captured a book, Mein Kampf, in uh, one of the battles there in Gaza. There is, without question, an overlap between the Nazis and the Islamists. There's no question. That's why I'm the one who started calling them Hamas Nazis. The Hamas Nazis. Others say ISIS. No, they're the Hamas Nazis. This is who they are. And what I'm trying to point out is in the 1930s, the Hitlerian Nazis were in our colleges and universities. They were also supported by significant so-called leaders in the Democrat Party. It's happening in our country today. These people didn't just show up. 
This isn't just about wokeism. I just wish some of my colleagues in radio and Fox would understand. This is intentional. This is paid for. This is brainwashing. And this is what's taken place. This group CARE and other organizations, front groups for Hamas and these other terror operations, they have succeeded. This is why I spend endless hours on this radio show, on my bla- on the uh, on the Levin TV, on the Blaze, on Fox, talking about this, talking about our media. Our media are doing the same thing they did during the Third Reich and the Holocaust. These college campuses, although they're more blatant, the individuals are more numerous. They're more aggressive are of the same ideology. We've imported our enemies. And so when people say, we're not going to bring more people from that part of the world in here, and they're attacked, who are they attacked by? The media? The squad? The same people who brought us to this position. And so rather than saying, we have a huge problem with immigration, we have a huge problem with our colleges and universities, we have a huge problem with our media... We have a huge problem with the Democrat Party, the current president of the United States. Let me say this. I'm almost out of time this segment. For Biden and the Democrats and the media. The Jewish state of Israel is not allowed to win. On and after October 7th, immediately after Joe Biden showed great sympathy for what happened on October 7th, where Jews were victims in horrific, monstrous atrocities. But when the Jews get their standing, and they go after the enemy, and they start wiping out the enemy and encircling the enemy, then the Jews are portrayed not as the victims, but as the victimizers. So Israel's not allowed to win. They've been louder and louder and louder today after the weekend, openly as well as their leaks. Too many civilian casualties. I've talked about this before. I'll talk about it until I'm blue in the face. They have no idea how many civilian casualties they are, and they have no idea who's creating them. But if there are too many civilian casualties, let me tell you what's happening tonight. Let me let's tell you what's been happening the last week. Citizens of Gaza are getting out. They're getting out of the war-torn areas. By the tens of thousands. How did that happen? Thanks to the Israelis. They cut the territory in half. They've encircled the enemy. They're killing the Hamas Nazi terrorists. People are leaving. And now there's a story that the Israeli, the IDF, is getting enormous amount of intelligence about Hamas, where they are, what they're doing. You know who from, Mr. Producer? The Palestinians. Who are escaping. In the end, it's the Israelis who are going to be the great liberators. It's Biden who's trying to prevent Israel from liberating these people and from defending itself once and for all. 
Israel has demonstrated it can take down Hamas, it can take down Hezbollah. And Biden doesn't like it because his worldview and that of Blinken and Obama was there can be no victor. Israel needs to be weaker. Iran needs to be stronger, as insane as this is. It's called the recalibration to rebalance the Middle East. And look what they've done. It's Biden who's blown up the Middle East. It's Biden who's sending billions and billions of dollars to Iran and the and the Palestinian terrorists. Mark Levin. In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount. So why is Congress considering a law that could put your credit card data at greater risk of being hacked and exposed to foreign networks? This Durbin Marshall credit card bill could jeopardize your financial data, make it more susceptible to cyber intrusions. It's a controversial bill that proposes a shift in billions of dollars worth of consumer transactions to payment networks that lack the robust security measures consumers rely on. Who could possibly want that? Well, the answer, woke corporate megastores seeking to inflate their multi-billion dollar profit margins. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill will undermine our safe and convenient payment systems and endanger your data security. It's time to take a stand. Visit electronicpaymentscoalition.org. Make your voice heard. Tell your senators to oppose the radical Durbin Marshall credit card bill paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Making your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. Over 30 years, Pastor John Hagee began an organization called Christians United for Israel. And media, I just call this man effectively uh, as uh, praising Hitler for the creation of Israel. They don't even know who this man is. The punk who wrote the story. They could have done a little bit of research. It's right all there online. I know Pastor Hagee. He loves the state of Israel as he loves the United States. So now they try to tie him to Hitler. It's the American media. You have these Hamas Nazis. You have these terrorists. You have their funding sources and their links in our own country. You have them undermining Israel at the time of war. And this is what they do. This is why you hate them and you should hate them. What is Skufire Christians United for Israel? Here's their mission statement. It's the largest pro-Israel organization in the United States with over 10 million members. Christians United for Israel is the foremost Christian organization educating and empowering millions of Americans to speak and act with one voice in defense of Israel and the Jewish people. Kufi's diversity across political, ethnic, generational, and denominational lines maximizes our impact in communities, in the media, on campus, and in our nation's capital. Kufi is committed to confronting indifference and combating anti-Semitism in all its forms wherever it may be found. That's very different than Hamas's mission statement, which I don't believe has been read by any news operation from beginning to end. Number one, it's quite long, but number two, it is uh, self-damning. And here this group founded by Dan Abrams is trashing one of the foremost leaders 
in the Christian world defending the state of Israel trying to tie him to Hitler this is really shocking but I guess it's really not Benjamin Netanyahu himself has been said to be Hitlerian the Jewish leader of the Jewish state by the radical left in his country and our country Kufi was created in February 2006 as a grassroots movement designed to unify Christians across all denominations and cultural boundaries in support of Israel. Why was Mediate founded? God knows why. It began with 400 pastors and ministry leaders. It says our size, effectiveness, and diversity across generational, racial, cultural, and denominational lines have positioned us as the leading voice for pro-Israel Christians. And it goes on, you can read it yourself, many of you are members. I tell you these things not only because of how disgustingly outrageous Mediate and the rest of the media are, suggesting that Donald Trump has gone full Hitler. And I noticed that Wolf Blitzer promoted this too. He should know better. And as CNN and MSNBC and all of them are promoting this. Liz Cheney, of course. Liz Cheney has psychological issues. Any Republican who supports Trump after he used the word vermin, whether it's the RNC chairwoman or anybody else, should be disqualified or is supporting Hitler talk. Isn't it shocking? Obama never received this kind of pushback. Obama was an anti-Semite. Still is, in my view. Was even before he became a politician. With his buddy, the Hamas-connected Khalidi. That's true. And in fact, apparently so damning is an audio that was taken at a meeting of a handful of people with Obama and Khalidi that the LA Times has and the LA Times wouldn't release during the course of the campaign still won't release. You know, Obama's statement that he put out was so awful that Alan Dershowitz had to condemn it as the piece of trash that it was. And then directs his UN ambassador in the UN to vote present when one of the worst UN resolutions is being proposed by the worst anti-Semites, and it passes. And we can go on and on. They don't call Obama Hitler. Hitler-like, Mussolini, Stalin. They don't call Biden Hitler for what's going on on the southern border. They don't call Franklin Roosevelt Hitler for what his State Department did to the Jewish people and his rounding up Japanese-American citizens for no damn reason. They don't call Woodrow Wilson Hitler and his promotion of eugenics, including against black people. They don't call Joseph Kennedy Sr. Hitler 
when he was sending messages through the back door as ambassador to Britain to Hitler's lieutenants. They don't call Margaret Sanger Hitler, even though she pushed eugenics, was supported by the Klan. They don't call Xi Hitler. They don't call the leader of Hamas Hitler. They don't call Abbas Hitler. They don't call anyone in Iran Hitler. But Trump has gone full Hitler, don't you know? They don't call out the New York Times for protecting Hitler. They don't call out the Washington Post for its silence in the face of Hitler. They don't call out a single squad member as going full Hitler. But Donald Trump used the word vermin. So according to Joe Scarborough, he's gone full Hitler. According to John Meacham, a crazed, low IQ, phony historian, Trump's gone Hitler. According to every racist, bigot, anti-Semite on MSNBC, and there are many, Trump's like Hitler, like Stalin, like Mussolini. Same with CNN. Wow. Amazing, isn't it? Meanwhile, there's Biden. Meaning with Xi. There's a Hitler. Two and a half million Uyghurs. Is he going to raise it as a concern? If he does, he'll do it in one of his incompetent whispers. Do the American media call Xi Hitler, who's slaughtering Muslims? No. Do the American media call Putin Hitler, who's slaughtering Ukrainians? No. Do the American people call Un, the inbred who runs North Korea, Hitler? Who slaughters and rapes and tortures relentlessly? No. Have they ever called the Castro brothers Hitler? No. How about that Maduro thug in Venezuela? Is he Hitler? No. No, just Donald Trump. Just Donald Trump. Anybody in his circle... Extremist radical MAGA. Tens of millions of honorable, law-abiding, tax-paying American citizens. Radical MAGA. Extremist MAGA. Led by Hitler, which means MAGA's Nazi too. You get it? They're code words. Hillary Clinton. Trump is Hitler. Where is Trump Hitler? When was Trump Hitler? What did Trump do that was anything like Hitler? The American media is the media of the 1930s and 40s in this regard. It has no morality. 
It has no governor. It has no soul. It has no guideposts. It is a free-for-all. They not only say these things, they say it with arrogance, self-righteousness, more than anything else, more than anyone else. The American media are tearing this country apart through their lies, through their narratives, through their projections. And these would be the same people who report on these prosecutions against Trump, on our politics, on our elections. These people are detestable. There are many, many scholars who who survived Stalin, Mao, Hitler. And they've written crucially important books, which I tried to point out to you in Chapter 4 of The Democrat Party Hates America. And I went through what were, to me, some of the most prominent scholars and survivors of these totalitarian regimes and what they said about language and values and beliefs and how totalitarian regimes destroy them. They create their own vocabulary. They create their own usage of approved words, effectively. And I also wrote, as you know, an unfreedom of the press about pseudo-events. Events that the press create in order to push a narrative. That's all in play when they write about a Donald Trump. His use of the word vermin is a pseudo-event. It's a non-event that's turned into news. And the use of it in the application to Donald Trump, of all people, in present day, to try and turn him into Hitler, is what the media for totalitarian regimes do. They need to turn people into something they are not. They turn them into the devil. So no matter what they say about anything, in your mind there's a click that goes off. Trump is Hitler. And that's how totalitarian regimes function with a state-run media that is in America a media that supports one party that is Marxist mostly in its ideology that is anti-Israel and sympathetic to Islamicism and this is how they roll so they'll hate Trump they'll hate Hagee They'll hate me. They'll hate the state of Israel. They'll hate Netanyahu like nothing else. And they will accuse Israel of Hitlerian war crimes. And that's where we are today. 
with CNN, MSNBC, Media Matters, Mediaite, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and all the rest. Why do you think they try to destroy Fox News? Because Fox News doesn't go along. Why do you think they try to destroy Newsmax? Because Newsmax doesn't go along. Why do you think they try to destroy OAN? Because OAN doesn't go along. Relatively handful of broadcast television platforms. Why do you think they've spent decades trying to destroy talk radio and the leading talk show hosts? By twisting their words. And they create an echo chamber. Media Matters, Mediaite, Huffington Post, Daily Beast, CNN, MSNBC. And that's the way. Mobster media function with a totalitarian mindset. And you're not only witnessing it, you're the victims of it. Mark Levin. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. You're listening to the best of Mark Levin. You know how Biden likes to say the Republican Party is not your father's Republican Party? But the Democrat Party is your father's Democrat Party. The Democrat Party press is your father's press. It's filled with racists and bigots and anti-Semites. It's filled with Marxists and anti-American punks. The vast majority of whom, not all, but the vast majority of whom have contributed nothing to the betterment of America. Nothing. Everybody with a chip on their shoulder seems to have a program. Everybody who hates this country seems to be a guest. And much of this has to do with the corporate media. That is, the corporatists. The Comcasts of the world. Based in Philadelphia. They own NBC and MSNBC. Look at CNN. CNN is a disgusting disgrace. Everybody knows it all over the world. The New York Times. Honestly, if it wasn't for me, over and over and over again over the years, writing about it in my books, talking about it over the microphone, talking about it on Fox, on The Blaze, and so forth, people wouldn't know the history of the New York Times. It is a horrendous history. Like few corporations ever in the world. And there it is, bubbling along. The State Department... A hundred Jew-hating bureaucrats wrote a letter complaining about what the Biden administration is doing in the Middle East. The poor Hamas terrorists, of course, they call them all Palestinians when it serves their purposes. And when it serves their purposes, they distinguish between Hamas and Palestinians. We know that. We're on to this game. 
But the Biden administration, which is becoming increasingly bellicose against Israel and is doing everything it can behind the scenes to handicap Israel's ability to defeat their enemy, our enemy. They're not doing enough, you see, because according to this this group of State Department bureaucrats, a hundred or more, we should be protecting the Palestinians from the Israeli Jews. Tell me, how many civilian hostages is Israel holding? And I mean, not just Palestinian, how many American hostages? How many European hostages? None. They hold criminals. They don't hold hostages. And tell me, why won't they release those hostages on the other side of the Gaza Strip? Hmm? Why won't they let fuel go to their big hospital there? Huh? Why are they shooting their own citizens to take their food and fuel? Did you read that one? I did. How many of the casualties in Gaza are as a result of Hamas, directly or indirectly? And why aren't they keeping those statistics? Well, you know, the Hamas health agency didn't give them the statistics. So, you know, they got to go based on their own anti-Semitic bigotry. How is Joy Reid still on MSNBC? How is Hassan still on MSNBC? The whole list of reprobates. How is Amanpour still on CNN? We can go down a whole list. Why does Mediate hate Israel and hate Jews so thoroughly? And the people who defend them. Why does Media Matters hide its relationship with George Soros, who hates Israel and hates America? Hmm? And is loaded with anti-Semites. The State Department, as you will have learned from Chapter 2 in the Democrat Party Hates America, has always been filled with Democrat Party anti-Semites. And they still are. They still are. And uh, Blinken's response to them is, well, we're listening. We listen to all sides. Excuse me? You're listening to all sides? Isn't that pretty shocking? Yeah, I think it is. Internal State Department memo, this is Fox News, accused Biden of misinformation on Israel-Hamas war. Some of the memo's language echoes that of progressive activist Axios reported. So these State Department bureaucrats are taking up the cudgel that Hamas propagandists, through its various surrogates, have been putting out including at these so-called protests, many of which have been violent and all of which have been heinous. An internal State Department dissent memo leaked to the press accused Biden of spreading misinformation about the Israel-Hamas war and claimed Israel's committing war crimes. And this is where you get liberals, particularly liberal Jewish people, defending Biden. See, see, they think he's helping Israel. That's not, that's not how you make a determination. The bar isn't what the extremist pro-Hamas 
wing of the Democrat Party and the State Department bureaucracy thinks of Biden. You measure these things objectively. Objectively. And Biden flunks. I have to be honest with you. Why do we have a nuclear submarine over there, Mr. Producer? Are we going to shoot nukes or something? It's a deterrent. A deterrent to what? We have a nuclear submarine over there. Look at that. He's got a nuclear sub there. He means business. What does he mean exactly? We have two aircraft carrier groups with enormous power. They have now injured 54 American soldiers, some of them very severely with brain damage. And they're not stopping. How many, how many of our troops have to die before Biden actually does something? These people already killed 32 Americans. 32 Americans, as if it never happened. And we haven't hit a single inch of Iran. Not an inch. Under Reagan, they hit one of our ships, and he blew out half their navy. And instead, today, as I speak to you right now, Biden, Blinken, have waived sanctions again. Waived sanctions again so Iran can sell Iraq electricity. Billions more (laughs) initial, $10 billion, but billions subsequent to this, to Iran. While they keep pressuring Israel to take their foot off the gas pedal, they keep giving Iran money to rearm itself and their surrogate terrorists. Chuck Schumer's at this rally today with 290,000 people supporting Israel, right? Chuck Schumer's weak. He's pathetic. Biden is his guy. Pick up the damn phone, Chuck. Rather than saying, we this, we that. You're the Senate Majority Leader. Read your man the Riot Act. Say not one penny for Iran. He didn't say that today when he was speaking. And of course, he doesn't tell Biden that either. It's awful. It's horrendous. The Democrat Party is your father's Democrat Party. As I cite here in The Democrat Party Hates American, thank you to those who've acquired it. Roosevelt's purposeful inaction during the Holocaust to assist Jews being slaughtered by the millions was contemptible and unconscionable. Now, there's been a lot of propaganda documentaries and books written about how great he was to the Jews. He didn't do anything for the Jews. He didn't do anything for blacks. He was a very selfish, egomaniacal, power-hungry, radical leftist president. That's what he was. I've told you about Raphael Medoff, a fantastic scholar. Here's the president who was regarded as a humanitarian, who portrayed himself as the champion of the little man, who had the power to save many Jews from the Holocaust, but who, to quote Fowler Harper, the Solicitor General, FDR's Solicitor General for the Interior Department in the 1940s, quote, he wouldn't lift a finger to help them. Not a finger. 
And back then, immigration limits were determined by the Department of State, ladies and gentlemen. By the Department of State. They were populated with several infamous anti-Semites, just as they are today. With the letter and the, and the texts and the memos. At state where the decisions about immigration and refugee issues were made, Roosevelt nearly always backed the bigots who blocked the migration of Jewish refugees into the United States from Germany and the rest of Europe during the height of the Holocaust. Quote, the U.S. immigration quota for Germany was filled for the first time in 1939, but thereafter, well below. The man responsible who worked with Roosevelt, both of them worked at the Department of Navy under Woodrow Wilson, another... uh, Another disgusting Democrat, Samuel Breckinridge Long, a hero of the neo-Nazis and the Klansmen today. Samuel Breckinridge Long, another wealthy elitist like Roosevelt. What did he do? What did he say? Long's dispatches to Washington from Rome, where he served for a period, Praise the fascistic Mussolini regime for its well-paved streets, dapper black-shirted stormtroopers. I'm quoting. And punctual trains. This was in his diary. He wrote a lot to himself. And in this private di- diary, Long, quote, described Hitler's Mein Kampf as eloquent in opposition to Jewry and Jews as exponents of communism and chaos. So I asked Joe Scarborough, why would FDR have a person like this in charge of immigration at the Department of State? Was Roosevelt Hitler? Just asking. Did Trump ever do anything like this? Somebody used the word vermin. Moreover, quote, Long regularly briefed Roosevelt on his efforts to suppress Jewish immigration below the level allowed by existing law. One diary entry, and I'll just cut to the chase. He said that Roosevelt never disagreed with him. Roosevelt made blatantly bigoted private remarks about Jews going way back. Other presidents have too, but the difference, Medoff writes, is Roosevelt acted on them. Joseph Kennedy, the patriarch of the Kennedy clan, the powerful Democrat, contemptible anti-Semite and pro-Third Reich, anti-Winston Churchill isolationist, who undermined U.S. policy as ambassador to Britain, eventually Kennedy resigned as ambassador. It was, and he was uh, an anti-Semite when he was in Hollywood. Notice how they covered it all up when Kennedy ran for president. Because this is what their media do. Was Joseph Kennedy Hitler? No, 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 we saved that for Trump, you see. And I can go on and on. You can read this chapter in the book. It's all spelled out in black and white. But what about today's State Department? You know, I have to give Roosevelt one thing. He wasn't funding the Nazis while the Nazis were exterminating the Jews. This administration is funding the Islamo-Nazis, the Iranians, 
while they're funding their surrogates to try and exterminate the Jews and while that regime is killing Americans. I don't know of any president ever in the history of the United States that was funding directly or indirectly, releasing funds, lifting waivers, however you want to describe it, however you want to characterize it, in the middle of a war with an ally and potentially us, funding the enemy, pressuring our ally to back up while the enemy is targeting American soldiers. Name one other president in American history that has ever done anything like this. And yet they're trying to put his putative opponent in prison for the rest of his life while the media wave at him and call him Hitler. So what do you call Biden, media? If Trump's Hitler, what's Biden? Mark Levin. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. The Great One makes your weekend even better. This is the best of Mark Levin. You know, I've spent... God, how long has it been now? Feels like forever. Pushing back against the Department of Injustice. U.S. Attorney's offices around the country. District attorneys in New York. District attorney in Fulton County, Georgia. The lies about Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. Endless efforts. Endless. They crippled Donald Trump's presidential ambitions to interfere in the election, to get the Scarlet Lever convicted felon placed on his campaign, the violations of the First Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment. I've explained on Fox here, Blaze, motions that should be filed. I've talked about motions that have been filed. We've had many of the president's lawyers on the program. But nobody, truthfully, has been more disgusted than I. As somebody who has spent my life, my career in the law, who served as chief of staff to a real attorney general under a great president, Now watch what's happening in our country, and I'm going to get to other issues relatively quickly, but I want to just clear the air here. It's something that I've said the Republicans in Congress need to look at and look at now. It's Democrat judges who are destroying the judicial system. Joined by some rhino Republican judges. But the ones who are motivated, the ones who are leading the effort, are the Democrat Party judges. Now, those of you who listen to this program and read the various books I write should not be surprised. Why? 
Because the greatest racist to ever serve in the White House, certainly among them, Woodrow Wilson, before he was president, when he was one of the leading so-called progressive intellectuals, that is, early American Marxists, he made the case again and again in his original writings that you need to use the court system to change the country. You have to force your will on the public. It's not Congress. It's not the elected branches up and down the chain. It's the judiciary. It's judges. That's exactly what's happening in Washington, D.C. with Chudkin. It's exactly what's happening in Manhattan. And honestly, several of these cases should have been thrown out already. Just thrown out. But the media, they love these judges. Trump files motion for mistrial in New York fraud case. He filed it today. We were going to have Alina Haba on the program. I think she's an excellent attorney. Uh, She's asked to come on tomorrow, so she'll be on tomorrow. And she's, if not the lead, one of the lead attorneys in this matter. In this case, like Bratt's case, are so contemptibly politically motivated, it's appalling. This case in Manhattan, in the civil case, has the potential for denying Donald Trump his private property, his business license, his ability to conduct any business in the city and state of New York. They've used a statute, as Fox has reported, that's never been used ever against anybody else. And why? Because the statute's unconstitutional. And why is that? There's no victim. There's no complainant. Nobody has suffered fraud. So the case is really a case about Letitia James and this judge, Engoron, deciding for themselves, cherry-picking information, on whether the assessments that were used, the valuations, and getting loans from certain banks meet the standard that Letitia James and this judge Arthur Engeron think they should have met. No victim, no complainant. Not a single bank has testified against Trump. They're all paid back on time without delay. These are big banks with big law firms. The legal documents stated affirmatively by Trump's lawyers in his documents not to rely on the valuations provided by the Trump organization. You're free, and transparently so, to make your own valuations and make your own decisions. So there is no fraud There's no misconduct. There's no victim. Well, actually, the only victim is Trump and his family. And so they've appealed. And so the legal experts say it's going to be tough to appeal, arguing that there's a mistrial. Oh, really? 
Well, the judge is a hack who ruled against Trump before he and his lawyers even walked in the courtroom. He ruled on the papers before he heard a word of testimony. And his conduct during the course of the trial, he was clownish. He was preening for the camera. The reason his law clerk sitting to his right was the target of Trump's ire is because the the law clerk kept rolling her eyes and making facial motions and so forth. And nobody should have to sit for that. The judge should have put an end to it. So it says, former President Trump's legal team requested a mistrial in the New York fraud case today, claiming, this is the Hill newspaper, the trial judge and his principal law clerk's purported bias against Trump has, quote, tainted the case. This appearance of bias threatens both defendants' rights and the integrity of the judiciary as an institution. <clears throat> Trump's counsel pointed to posts made by John, uh, Judge Erdogan to a Whitley School alumni page, which the judge appears to run, referencing the case of individuals involved with it, including Trump, his son Eric Trump, and Trump attorney Alina Haba. The motion cited New York Code reading that a judge shall not make any public comment about a pending or impending proceeding in any court within the United States or its territory. You know, this is basic stuff to get a judge disbarred, a lawyer disbarred. It's like Chunkin doing the same thing. She's gotten away with it. She refuses to recuse herself. So she's the judge of herself. No, I don't think I've done anything wrong, so I'm staying. The former president's legal team also addressed their concerns with the judge's principal law clerk, who's become an unwitting main character in the trial. They asserted the clerk has acted throughout the trial as a co-judge, conferring with the judge via whispers or written notes before, before most orders have been issued. Now, a lot of judges are so stupid or incompetent. It's the law clerks that write the decisions. And I was told by a a law clerk to a Supreme Court justice when Harry Blackman was on the court with respect to Roe v. Wade that most of that was written by his law clerks. This happens, folks. You actually have judges and justices, and I wrote about it in Men in Black, who are senile, who have the early forms of dementia, who are not intelligent and their clerks control the opinions. And so I'm sure that's what happened here. The principal law clerk has given unprecedented and inappropriate latitude, Trump's counsel wrote. The filing also claimed the clerk has made partisan political contributions in excess of strict limits, including to groups that oppose Trump and support New York Attorney General Letitia James, because it's an inside job, folks. And it goes on. You have a intellectually corrupt judge, with a radical Marxist attorney general who should have had her ticket pulled, running for office based on going after Trump, the radical leftist clerk keeps whispering in the judge's ear. And they weren't sweet nothings, I don't think. And the judge himself has demonstrated 
that he's partisan, that he can't be an objective referee. The way that he ruled, as there's no jury, was unconscionable. Trump walks into that courtroom, he's already guilty, his company's already guilty, now it's just a matter of money. Penalties. And nobody's ever been charged under this law. And furthermore, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the feds looked at this case and said, no, no, we're not, we're not in on this. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office looked at this, as bad as they are, and said, no, we're not in on this. And Letitia James jumped into it anyway. Summary judgment should have been given to Trump. In fact, it should have been dismissed even without summary judgment. I'm not going to get into all the details there. It should have been dismissed, period. And so they're having to appeal to another Democrat-controlled appellate court. Then they can appeal to their highest court which there they call the Court of Appeals. It's kind of screwed up, but that's what they do. So Trump and his family and his organization are stuck in this funnel where there's Democrat authority, Democrat control every step of the way. In the end, they may have to try the U.S. Supreme Court, but they don't seem to have the courage to do much. And I would argue it's a violation of the Fifth Amendment, the takings clause. And I would argue it's a violation of due process under the Fifth Amendment. So I believe there are federal constitutional arguments that can be made at some point. But we'll have Alina Habao on the program tomorrow. I want to go through this as we go through every one of these cases. And in Washington, D.C., Jack the Ripper Smith is losing his mind. He's losing his temperament, such as it is. He's demanding that the appellate court dismiss the waste of time with these motions. They're just trying to delay, you know, and we, we the federal government, we're in a hurry to put Trump in prison before the first vote is cast, you know. When Trump's Lawyers have argued that he actually does fall under executive privilege, that the actions he's being attacked for occurred when he was president of the United States. And that is a very strong argument, by the way. No president's had to make that argument before because no president's been treated this way. And, of course, they're challenging the gag order, which is utterly unconstitutional. And so Jack the Ripper, the phony special prosecutor, nothing special about him, he's a... He's a headhunter. He wants the gag order expanded. Even the disreputable ACLU, the American Criminal Liberties Union, has said we hold our nose because we hate Trump, but this is clearly unconstitutional. But the position of the Department of Justice is the First Amendment doesn't apply to a defendant. The First Amendment doesn't apply to a former president, and the First Amendment doesn't apply to somebody who's trying to win back the presidency and respond to all of his critics. So in other words, this is a grotesque undermining of the campaign of obviously the front runner for the presidency.
interfering in the election, the evisceration of constitutional norms, and hack Democrat federal judges like the ones in New York and in Washington. Mark Levin. We're giving you nothing but the best, the best of Mark Levin. I would love these other people to come on, to engage, to debate, so millions and millions of you can hear their views, and in many cases, me challenging their views. Now, if I agree with somebody, there's not a lot to challenge. But I think it's important that these people have access to you. We're very open about this. I mean, I can go through a whole list of people that we invite here who never want to show up. Some of them don't answer. Some of them do. Some of them blow us off. It just is what it is. And we move on. The show isn't really based on any of that anyway. Now, we know the name and the occupation of the individual who killed who killed Paul Kessler. Who's Paul Kessler? Well, you don't know his name very well uh, because the media have decided that he's not worthy of the kind of attention other people are who die unfortunately, at the hands of killers and so forth. But Paul Kessler's apparently not on the top of the list. But now we know, and National Review, among others, are reporting, who killed Paul Kessler. Leah Almaji, L-O-A-Y-A-L-N-A-J-I, a computer science professor, I just read your piece called Tenured Barbarians from the new Criterion. I did it for a reason. Professor at Ventura County Community College was arrested this morning, charged with involuntary manslaughter after he was involved in the deadly confrontation with pro-Israel demonstrator Paul Kessler. He died in early November of his wounds following a physical altercation with a counter-protester, quote-unquote, The Ventura County Sheriff's Department said in a statement afterward, and during that alteration, altercation rather, Kessler fell backward, struck his head on the ground. The Ventura County Medical Examiner's Office determined the cause of death to be blunt force head injury and the manner of death homicide. At the time, writes National Review, the time of the incident, an unnamed suspect, since identified as Al-Naji, was detained by police as law enforcement conducted a home search before releasing the suspect on his own accord. Ventura County Sheriff Jim Freihoff told reporters shortly after that Almaji was cooperative with authorities, though police refrained from publicly disclosing his name until a more thorough investigation was concluded. Involuntary manslaughter, I guess it doesn't get any lower than that when it comes to murder. I don't know how it works in California under their code. But there you have it. I have a question for the media, all the media. How do you know these are pro-Palestine or pro-Palestinian demonstrations and not pro-Hamas demonstrations? 
you've lectured us over and over again that there's a distinction. Okay, let's stipulate there's a distinction. So why do you, why do you refer to or characterize people who are openly, loudly, vociferously, with posters in red and white and black and white, defending Hamas, filled with anti-Semitism, the swastika, demanding the elimination of the Jews, why are you calling them pro-Palestinian pro, uh, demonstrators? Why aren't you calling them pro-Hamas demonstrators? I'm quite serious about this. I just watched one of these demonstrations on TV. It was obviously a pro-Hamas demonstration. Uh, it was violent. And they called it a pro-Palestinian demonstration. Why? If they're right, and if I stipulate to it, just for the purpose of argument only. Aren't they making the opposite point? That all Palestinians are the same? Or is the point that all Palestinians are not Hamas? Or all Palestinians are Hamas? You see, they're sloppy. They're lazy. They're repetitive. They say one thing out of one side of their mouth and another thing out of the other side of their mouth. But I just saw this. I said, wait a minute. What is this? So this California professor, obviously one of the tenured barbarians, as the new criterion rightly put it, I love that phrase because it says so much. So much that is true. And I don't know if you heard about this. You had the biggest rally in American history. The biggest Jewish rally and of course the biggest rally for Israel in the history of that state in the United States. And again, National Review, hundreds of pro-Israel demonstrators were left stranded on tarmac after the bus drivers coordinate an anti-Semitic strike. Really, what is this all about? Hundreds of Jewish Americans on their way to Tuesday's March for Israel to the National Mall were left stranded on the tarmac of a local airport after their bus drivers coordinated, quote, a mass sickout, unquote, to prevent the travelers from attending the rally. Around 300 of the 900 passengers had flown in to Detroit, or from Detroit, were left on the tarmac, the Jewish Federation of Detroit, at Dulles International Airport for nearly 11 hours, causing them to miss the entire march. So here they are, spending money to go to the march to exercise their free speech rights, their freedom to assemble rights, and they're prevented by truck drivers. Bus drivers, I should say. Who obviously are quite anti-Semitic. When several buses failed to appear upon their 10.30 a.m. landing, many travelers had no way to leave the tarmac. They're on the tarmac. David Kurzman, the Senior Director of Community Affairs for the Jewish Federation of Detroit, had learned from the bus company that this was caused by a deliberate and malicious walk-off, that is, of the drivers. He said the bus company told the Federation that a significant number of drivers called out sick when they learned what would be taking that where they'd be taking hundreds of Jewish Americans, that is, to the pro-Israel rally, the Federation 
has not named the bus company and has refused to do so. Jonathan Kaufman had flown in from Detroit, eager to attend the rally. He was one of hundreds left stranded. I thought it was nuts. I thought it was crazy that we're blocked from getting to the rally, he told the New York Post, adding that there were frantic calls to find out what was happening as they were stranded for hours. Our right to assembly is a constitutional right, and this was straight up blocking that. Those left behind spent roughly three hours on the tarmac before they were loaded on several buses, only to be told that the buses were not for their group and they had to offload immediately. Now, the Jewish Federation of Detroit had chartered three private planes carrying 900 passengers in total. The transport rally goers from Detroit to Dulles, outside of Washington. According to airport regulations, travelers on privately chartered planes are not allowed to leave the tarmac without pre-organized vehicular transportation. There they are, stuck on the planes. Some for up to 11 hours. Because the passengers didn't pass through a TSA checkpoint before boarding, typical for privately chartered flights, they were not permitted inside the airport either. And when it came time for the whole group to fly back to Detroit after the rally, the plane's crew had timed out. That is, union rules. Exceeded federally mandated or federal government rules, federally mandated work limits because of the unexpected delay in the morning. The Federation was not allowed to leave for Detroit until 2.30 a.m. in the morning, leaving those who had made it to the rally waiting for hours outside the airport. Some in the group hadn't eaten all day. Kaufman, who spent hours on the tarmac, and spent hundreds of dollars to attend the march with his mother, called the walkout a deliberate anti-Semitic act that would have been called a hate crime if it happened to any other ethnic group. Can you imagine that? Isn't he right? Isn't he 100% right? This has received almost no attention in the corrupt corporate Democrat Party media. This is a historical moment, and I would have loved to be part of it. While we're deeply dismayed by this disgraceful action, our resolve to proudly stand in solidarity and so forth has never been greater. But there you have it. The radical left-wing Marxist Islamists are blocking traffic, who are attacking the DNC, I'll get to that later, and doing all kinds of miserable things. It's amazing. You don't hear about them being inconvenienced in any way, do you? No. They get on and off buses, no question about it, on and off trains, on and off planes. They seem to have easy access to wherever they want to go. We have a fantastic couple of shows this weekend, by the way. Sunday's Life, Liberty, and Levin, 8 p.m. Eastern. We begin with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And you know the way I conduct my interviews, people get to speak. You'll see what a remarkable individual he is, and he has some very profound things to say that you haven't heard everywhere else. And you'll see by the nature of my questions that I don't work for CNN. On Saturday, the night before, 
a fantastic interview as well. We have Stephen Miller, who was called by Joy Reid, a white nationalist and a racist and all the other things, and I wanted to give him an opportunity to respond, and he will. By the way, the guest after Netanyahu is Alan Dershowitz, and he has a lot to say, including about Obama. So it is a full weekend of spectacular programming, not because of me, but because of the guests and the nature of the format. Four guests only in two one-hour shows. And you'll hear things and learn things. You'll be intrigued by things that you may never have heard before. That's the point of the program. Life, Liberty, and Levin, Saturday, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. If you think you're going to be watching some college game or going out to dinner, you might want to DVR the program while you're thinking about it now. Sunday, Benjamin Netanyahu and Alan Dershowitz. If you're not sure you're going to watch it, maybe you're going to watch football or something else, then set your DVR. Don't miss it. But even better yet, put aside an hour. Just an hour. And watch it live. 